What is up, everybody? It is Wednesday, May 25th. And as you know, my name is Rafael Garcia, and I am here with Chuan Humes. And I just wanted to say thank you again for joining us for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Not bad at all. Thank you for asking. Glad to be back after missing a week, took a week off, had a family stuff to take care of, but glad to be back as always. Good, good, good stuff, man. We are always glad to have you back on the show. So I think we got quite a bit to talk about this week, man. I know you, um, you've been gone. So where should we start, man? Um, let's look back and let's see. Let's see what I got for the agenda. Let's start with Bellator 179, where we saw Roy McDonald and Paul Daly headline a um tape delay event, which I'm pretty interested why they decided to, to put this on tape delay, but that didn't limit the show's success. We'll talk about that in a second. But when we look at this main event, um, Roy McDonald got the win in the second round of the fight via a rear naked choke. Um, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think we both picked McDonald to get the win here. So... Tell me what, what you saw here um, on Friday last week, Sean. Were you surprised? Did you see anything that kind of stood out to you or no? Uh, well, first of all, like uh, last week I actually did a, a piece. It was called The History of Violence, Deconstructing the Game of Rory McDonald. And we had talked about this fight when they first signed it. The, it's, it was an impressive showing from Rory because it showed that he still had some ability. It showed he had the aggression, the finishing ability, and it showed a little, little bit more of the well-rounded, aspects of his game because recently in the in the UFC when last time we saw him a lot of his game had been centered around the stand-up working the jab uh defending takedowns kind of controlling people and breaking them down on the feet um, whether it was win or lose a lot of his fights were won or lost on the feet to be honest in the, in the UFC so we hadn't seen this version of Rory McDonald in a while where he was actually taking someone down and looking to finish instead of you know taking them down to disrupt their ability to get their offense going or taking them down and then trying to ground and pound them he actually, he actually took, um, he actually took Daly down, worked him over, uh, improved position, and then finished. So we hadn't seen that from him in a while, and he looked physically good. He looked like mentally he was in it. It's really hard to tell what to expect from him, just because we didn't see him take any punishment, and that's still the question everybody's wondering as far as the regards to being damaged goods. What happens when he gets cracked a couple of times? What times when he gets hit with a really good shot? Then what happens to Roy McDonald? Because after that fight with Lawler, when you saw him fight Thompson, he seemed a little gun shy. He seemed a little hesitant. He re-injured his nose again. And that kind of changed the tone of the fight. So we, we still don't know how, if he's fully recovered from that. I guess that tra- the trauma of that, that fight with Lawler and then the fight with Thompson. And we still don't know what's going to happen the first time a guy kind of puts some heat on him and starts um, putting volume on him or putting big shots on him, which is still... So we, we still don't know how he is in that in that regards. But as far as how he looked and and how he moved and the technique he showed, he uh, seemed as good as he's ever been. So you actually brought up something very true right, that I also wondered. You know what happens when Roy McDonald fight fights someone who can put damage on him. I mean, we have Douglas Lima and Lorenz Larkin fighting um, at Bellator 180, and I'm guessing the winner of that will face Rory McDonald for the title at a later at a later date. My question is, what does it look like if he faces both of those guys? Because both of them, especially Larkin, are, they're on a tear. So if he were to fight one of those two guys, what do you think would happen? Uh, is he, I, I want to know if, if he's readily prepared 
to take that type of damage because, you know, he's been fighting since he was 15 years old. I mean, even though he's only 27, you know, he's been fighting since he's been 15. And those last two fights that he had definitely probably took some took some years off of off of his career. Yeah, I, I would agree. The only the only thing that I was and I wrote this in my article, the thing that stood out to me about Rory McDonald is a lot of his his fight style, especially under Zahavi, has been about control. He doesn't let the fight get out of hand. He doesn't put himself in positions where a fight can be exciting. He doesn't put himself in a position to take a lot of damage. Somebody like Robbie Lawler, he's taking damage from the time he became pro to the end. Nick Diaz, from the time he became a pro to the end. Rory McDonald, with the exception of about maybe about three fights out of the 20, 20 or so, maybe the four fights out of the 20, 30 fights he's had, he's only really taken punishment and about real punishment in about two fights when he got stopped by Condit, and that was really brief. And then when he got really beat up by Lawler, the other fights he's taken the set, the first Lawler fight, he took some damage, but nothing, nothing life altering. And in the Thompson fight, he took some damage, but once again, it wasn't life altering. So I, I would like to think because he's with somebody like Zahabi and he's taking the approach he's taken, which is kind of a safety first. I'm going to use every aspect, technical aspect of my game from my length to my footwork to the spacing and my grappling to kind of pre- present layers of defense. It'll keep me safe and extend my career. I would like to think, as a result, his body is more prepared to recover from and absorb damage because he's pretty much preserved it by fighting in a very disciplined manner. He's never just thrown, you know, his hands in the air and just said, I'm going to go go down swinging. That's not really how he works, and that's not how his coach works. So I'm hoping that the case is that he taking that time off has kind of helped him heal and got him in the right mindset and that his body's prepared to take punishment. And uh, just one more point before I get into the matchup with Larkin or Lima, a lot of people are kind of bashing Paul Daly and, you know, he's not great. He's, he's kind of a one-dimensional fighter. His ground game is not very good at all. His wrestling game is not very good at all. But the fact of the matter is in his last five fights in Bellator, he was 4-1. and one, And when he did fight Douglas Lima, Lima clearly beat him, but it wasn't like Lima just walked through him and the first shot he hit him with, he finished him, or he just took him down, left and right, and pounded him out and submitted him. It was actually competitive in spots. He was clearly the winner, but there were moments where Daly was able to get off with his offense, land some power shots, land some counters and some leads, and he was able to take some of what Lima had to offer on the feet. So it's not as if, it's not as if even though it was a favorable matchup for Rory, it wasn't as if Paul Daly hadn't shown anything in his most recent fights. He was 4-1 in Bellator, had some knockout wins, decision wins, he had one loss against Lima, but it wasn't like he just got smoked. It wasn't a Jose Aldo Conor McGregor type situation. He was fairly competitive in spots in that fight. So I still think the daily fight warrants some credit for McDonald because, you know, he was coming in with only one loss in his last five. That's still a pretty good record, which means he had things in his favor. And Rory was coming off of a two-fight losing streak and a year, almost a year and a half off of, of competition. So we can't minimize his effectiveness or minimize the win just because it was a favorable style, style matchup. We've seen guys with favorable style matchups lose due to inactivity and overconfidence, and Rory didn't allow any of that to get to him. So before you go on, I want you to can you check your settings because you're breaking up pretty frequently. Okay. So I just want to make sure that we can hear you. But I definitely agree with you. Um, I had I think I wrote about Paul Daly after the after his fight before he fought McDonald, and I was just wondering, you know, how great could this guy have been if he would have stayed in the UFC? He would have never had that problem because he had he has the style that the UFC has always loved, and he has the personality that could have become a star. And I always wondered how big of a star could this guy have been if he would have never been kicked out of the octagon. So, um, 
yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, he doesn't have a resume that includes the biggest names in the sport, but Duke is not he I don't even see him as a gatekeeper type of type of fighter cuz he's someone that all, he's like the epitome of having a puncher's chance in an MMA bout because if he touches your if, if he touches your your your, your chin, the, the fight can definitely be over. Yeah, he, he's never just gotten wiped out. I mean, Josh Koscheck out wrestled him, but it wasn't like Koscheck was close to finishing him. He beat Martin Campman, and Campman was a very good welterweight for the large majority of his time in the UFC. He was a top ten, top seven ranked welterweight. He beat him. Scott Smith, Scott Smith, at one point was a fairly competitive middleweight, and uh, even more so in strike force. And then when he fought Nick Diaz, it wasn't like Nick Diaz just took him down and wore him out or just walked through him. He was actually competitive with Nick Diaz for the majority of that fight. So people like to paint him as a guy who just didn't belong in certain areas. He hadn't developed a game, but just based off of his skill set, his physical skills and his striking skills, he was a guy who, he was a guy who was going to be able to get ranked in almost any, he was, he was going to be ranked in UFC, ranked in strike force, ranked in Bellator. So he's a guy who's been in three different organizations and he, three major, three major organizations. He was ranked in all of them. And a lot of guys can't even say they've ever been officially ranked in the top 10 in any organization. So it's dismissive to it's dismissive and it's kind of ignorant to act like he has he poses no threat to anybody because Martin Campion was a skilled striker, pretty decent MMA wrestler, pretty good grappler. Sir Roy McDonald and he he finished that guy in one shot and that might have been years ago, but the fact of the matter is he did win those fights and he 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 has been on a winning streak. So you know we can't dismiss that just because of his lack of his lack of development and skill set or because we just don't like him. The facts are he was winning. He was a more active guy. Rory was coming off a two, on a two-fight losing streak, and he was coming off of being out of competition. That spells disaster. I mean, think about this. Ronda Rousey came off of a huge stop in like a year and a half, two-year break, and the first time she stepped back in the cage, she got totally black. The first time she got touched, she fell apart. So it's not like we haven't seen people come back after an extended timeout being rusty, not being prepared to take abuse, and then shutting down the minute they get touched. That's happened. That happens quite frequently in mixed martial arts, to be honest. It definitely does. Um, guys who guys find themselves in situations where they don't look as good as they once did, um, and that was a question surrounding McDonald coming into this fight, and he passed the test. At least he passed the test this time um, for sure. What do you think about him facing the winner? of um, Douglas Lima and Lorenz Larkin? Uh, with the fight, if he faces Larkin, the biggest issue for him, Larkin's not the biggest hitter, but the biggest issue with him is Larkin's mobility, not necessarily his footwork, because his footwork can kind of break down under pressure and he'll back himself into the cage and kind of get stuck. But as far as he can get, he moves around the ring a lot. He moves, he moves very well. He moves very fast. And his overall hand speed and foot speed, Lorenz Larkin has fought in three different weight classes. He fought a light heavyweight, where he was lightning fast. He fought in middleweight, where once again, he was lightning fast. And now he's fighting a welterweight. And usually as you drop in weight, if you're faster at a higher weight, you, the speed advantage isn't yours when you drop to a lower weight. For example, Frankie Edgar was fighting at 155. He was one of the quickest, quickest, maybe fastest guys at 55. He comes down to 45 and the gap in speed, that advantage he usually has isn't as prominent. Same thing when Faber went down to 135. He was still one of the faster guys but there wasn't a huge gap in the speed difference as when he was at 145. Larkin's dropped three different weight classes and every single weight class, he has been one of the, if not the fastest puncher and kicker in division. So the biggest issue against Larkin is gonna be Larkin's hand speed, his foot speed and his creativity 
in his setups with his kicks. He's really tricky with his feints. He can throw all. He can throw side kicks, spinning side kicks, back kicks, front kicks, axe kicks, uh, question mark kicks, sweeps, leg kicks, body kicks, front kicks to the body or the head. He has a large variety of arsenal of kicks to use, and he has the athleticism and the timing to pretty much land him on anybody. So the question is, is Rory going to be able to deal with that speed? Now, some people would say he handled Tyron Woodley, and Woodley's very fast, but Woodley's only fast in spots. Larkin's speed generally carries from first round to second round. I think the advantage Mark, the Rory McDonald will have is, one, he's a better wrestler. Two, he's a better grappler. Three, he's probably going to be the bigger welterweight. He, he could actually fight at middleweight. I think he'd choose to fight at welterweight to have the size advantage. And four... That jab is. Larkin's got pretty good hands, but he tends to get a little wide on his comp when he starts combinations. The first one or two shots, they're pretty sharp and clean. When he starts getting to three, four, five, and six is when he starts getting a little wide. You can pressure him a little bit with footwork, trap him on the cage, and if you've got a steady and diverse jab, which Roy McDonald does, you can kind of control his feints, can control his timing, get him to the cage, and work him over with combinations. He's been stopped like that before. Costa who stopped him. He had troubles on the cage with Tumanov. He's had trouble on the cage with Ponzinibbio. And none of those guys have the jab or the comprehensive striking that Rory does. I think Rory would have some opportunities against him and can negate the speed. The question is, could he handle it when he gets hit? Because he's going to get hit. Larkin's too fast, too quick, and too explosive to not land on you. And early on, takedowns, he should be able to get back up from takedowns. But I think Rory has a better skill set and the deeper skill set and the, the tenure and the experience at the higher level. So he should be able to handle whatever he has. Lima's a problem because Lima's so big, and Lima's comparably big and long to McDonald. So I don't think it'd be as easy to get takedowns on him. I don't think it'd be as easy to control him against the cage. And even if he gets him down to the ground, Lima's shown some defensive awareness and some ability to create scrambles to get into better positions. So I actually think the striking skills, I don't, Lima's, he's a good striker, but he's not, unique, uniquely gifted like Larkin. And he doesn't have a unique style like Steven Thompson. He's more straight up and down, more of a classical striker. So on the feet, I think McDonald more than has enough to deal with whatever he has. Once again, the question is, when he gets cracked, how does he handle it? If he can take the power and he's prepared to take power, shut down or get defensive, he should be able to systematically break him down behind that jab and pressure. And if, if, he, if Lima can handle the pressure and starts putting pressure on Rory, Rory has versatility. He can pot shot you. He can work from a distance. He can work in close. He can work to clinch. He has a lot of variety. I think he has a little bit more variety in his game. And once again, I think he's faced a better level of opposition. He's prepared him technically or exceed him physically. The problem is, can he handle punishment? Because Lima's going to put hands on him at some point. Lima's size, his strength, and his power is going to present problems if Roy McDonald is not 100% ready to go in there and take punishment. If he is, I, I would favor him against both guys. Both guys. But if he isn't, and there's something left in his mind that's going to make him be gun-shy, he's going to get exposed. He's going to get exposed by either one of them because both of them are too good and too gifted to not put in some kind of work on him at some point in the fight. And if he just falls apart, then, you know, that's essentially what happened. Robbie Lawler hit him in that, that fourth round. I think it was the fourth round, and he had him staggered, and he never recovered from that. Something similar happens, whether it's early or late. I don't think that McDonald has the recuperative ability or the durability to make it through that and pull out a fight. I think he's a guy who's got to keep the fight either even, or he's got to sit on a lead to win a fight, especially with guys with those kind of attributes. 
So you, you've kind of segued into something you know, um, I, I didn't want to talk about today, but let's go ahead and hop on it because it is an interesting topic. Because I think I wrote about this as well. Um, I think McDonald's win creates some intrigue in the welterweight division for Bellator. And I think, man, they're slowly, 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 I don't want to use the term gaining ground, but they're, they're gaining the ability to, to create some interesting and compelling fights because you have Lima there, you have Kreshkov, you have McDonald now, you have Larkin, you have, um, you, be, you have Benson Henderson who can still bounce around. So tell me about that division as a whole. Are you more interested in seeing these guys fighting? And, and I got another question for you too as well, but I want you to talk, we'll talk about that one first. Are you more interested in seeing these guys fighting now? Because I definitely think that they have an opportunity to create some key matchups here in, in the, in the near future. Well, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the welterweight division and I've actually been a fan of Bellator. We've talked about Bellator quite often. And, um, the thing is, once again, th this is the problem with Bellator, and, and you're probably going to be like, you could probably just put a recording of me saying this on because it's always the same thing I say. It's not that at the very top, they have an abundance of talent, top-notch talent that can compete with anybody. Rory McDonald's beat the number one contender in the UFC, and he's already beaten the champion in the UFC, and he beat them soundly. It wasn't close. He dismantled Tyron Woodley, and nothing Woodley's shown me since then tells me that Woodley could beat could beat McDonald right now, and nothing Damian Maya has shown me since then has convinced me that he could beat McDonald right now. I would argue so, that I, I would argue you on that one because that because that Damian Maya fight wasn't soundly; it was a split decision. It was and it was it, well, it, it was one one going into the third round. It, well, it was it was I apologize. It was it, it was definitely one one. And if if Maya would have got that final takedown where he got reversed because he ran out of gas, and I think McDonald ended up mounting him, that fight could have went to Maya. It, it could have went to my, but the thing is, it's like when Jorge Masvidal, Masvidal waited in certain spots too long. He, and, but that's what happens when you're a guy who gets by on more of reps of spikes and rounds. You develop a sort of feel for things. And sometimes you're feeling for things in your comfort because you've been in so many fights and you fought so many high-level guys. You get comfortable in spots you shouldn't get comfortable in. Roy McDonald never really settled in when he fought Damian Mile. He never capitulated. He never accepted certain positions. He never to fight in certain positions. The reason Maya gassed is because there was at no point was he able to get to the positions where he could rest and dominate position. McDonald was fighting him from every single point physically, and he had techn enough technical acumen to not hang out in certain spots, thinking that he wouldn't get taken down or thinking that Maya wouldn't be in a better position. So little technical mistakes that a more structured and a more detail-oriented fighter like McDonald is never going to make. He's not going to make those things. It was tight, but I knew I felt that after the first round, he was going to walk Maya down. Championship fight, I guarantee he doesn't. He walks Maya down. He might. He stops Maya inside of five, and I think he out he out slicks and out bosses. anything either. I'm not saying they're not good fighters. In the detail, the guys who just fight a lot and spar a lot don't have the guys who really drill specific situation and in specific instances always have, but um, they have a, a top line of talent. that's very good. Even Mike, with Michael Venom page, he's a talent. Paul Daly still has some talent, but the thing is after those first four, five, seven fighters, who else do they have? Like we could have this interesting round Robin, but once we get through that, who else is there? And that's the thing they're still lacking. They're still lacking that depth. They're competitive with the UFC. I'll put their top seven against the UFC's top seven, and we can have some pretty good fights. It might just go fit either way, 50-50. We already know Bellator's new assignee, center and the champion. 
So we know they have talent. We know Lorenz Larkin's taken out three or four of their top welterweights, including Jorge Masvidal. He beat him by decision. So we know they have the talent to compete there. After you get past that first seven, there's a huge drop-off between seven and eight and nine and ten. It's a dramatic drop-off. Welterweight, they have, you know, throughout the top 15, even the top 20, they have guys who can be competitive up and down the line. So once they develop some more depth, they get a couple more names or a couple more guys who were maybe aren't names but have some seasoning and some experience, they'll be fine. Right now, they're off to a very good start. Right now, the top of their division, talent-wise, is comfortable, if not better than the UFCs, right at this moment. And I like what they're doing, but they need to do more of it so that we don't have these huge matchups and then these absolute squash matches between Roy McDonald and Joe Smith from Tennessee, If you know, which we see a lot of those fights on Bellator cards. Yeah, I can, I can agree with you on that there. Um, I, I think that they're headed in, in the right direction, but there is still work to be done. I can definitely agree with you on that. So speaking of, you know, the rest of the division, the rest of the card itself, what else stood out from you on, on this event? I was pretty surprised, surprised to see Linton Vassell get that submission win over um, Liam McGarry that way. Did anything else stand out to you? That stood that. The only reason that stood out, the only, that really was the thing that stood out to me because I was actually talking to uh, King Mo when the fight was going on, and it didn't surprise me at all. If you remember when, Link, when Liam McGarry was going to fight Phil Davis, I wasn't necessarily harsh on him, but the biggest thing I said is this guy is going to concede takedowns. He can't wrestle. He can't control anybody, really. He can't, he can't get up when he wants to. He can't create scrambles, or maybe he just chooses not to and chooses to grapple from the bottom which is well and good when you're facing guys you're bigger than, when you're facing guys who are overly aggressive, when you're facing guys who don't have a certain caliber of wrestling and submission awareness. They'll put themselves in spots where they're going to be finished. Um, Tito Ortiz took him down, but Tito got, got Tito didn't have the pressure and the activity he said at, at a young age. At a young age, Tito just would have pounded him and submitted him and defended the submission and finished him, in my opinion. He won the tournament. They didn't have the size, nor did they have the technical acumen on the ground to maintain position and to control him. When he fought Phil Davis, Davis took him down and just basically outworked him and controlled him for five rounds. Davis, I believe, could have finished him, but the reason Davis didn't finish him is Davis is a safety first fighter. He's not taking any chances because he understands that he neither has the chin nor, and, and to some fighters, I've heard fighters say, he doesn't have the, maybe the mental toughness to work out of tight spots when, when in tight submissions. Against Vassell, Vassell is a better stand-up fighter. Vassell's mentally tougher. He's physically more durable. And he has a better wrestling game than Liam McGarry. She wasn't shocked by this being a finish at all. McGarry wasn't gonna, isn't very good at getting back to his feet. He's going to depend solely on his ability to transition from submission to submission and finish you from the ground. He's going to give you opportunities to work him over. He's going to give you opportunities to control him and grind him out because he's 100% dependent on his ability that he can finish you from the ground. I didn't think he'd be able to finish Vassell. Vassell's physically stronger. He's a more physical fighter. He's more durable. And from the top position, he's really a problem. If he can, if he can control position completely, he's going to finish almost anybody he fights. So that fight was, wasn't close to me. I thought it was a terrible fight when it was announced. I don't know what McGarry was thinking. Vassell's, he's like a, he's like a lesser skilled wrestling version but better overall submission version of submission and striking version of Phil Davis. So I pretty much knew that he was going to go for the finish and he was going to try to put damage on McGarry and McGarry was going to try to work a submission and take a beating trying to finish the fight. 
And that's pretty much what happened. And uh, McGarry went from being the champion or got a champion who might be getting a rematch soon and being back in the top position, fighting all the names in Bellator. Now he's on a two-fight losing streak, and he's out of the sweepstakes. He's not getting a King Mo. He's not getting a he's not getting a shot at Davis again. He's not getting a shot at Vassell. He's moved way down the line. He's gonna have to beat up a couple of no-namers before he even gets another chance to fight a person with any sort of cachet or ranking. He, he's pretty much set himself back at least another year, year and a half after this fight. Yeah, like um, I remember thinking, you know, that you kind of did say. I mean, you definitely just say what you said about you know the way he the way he does kind of fight off of his back versus anything else. And I was still kind of surprised to see him get finished by um Linton Vassal in this bout there. But man, I mean, that really kind of put a really kind of put a stop to the UFC's light heavyweight division. And you know how I feel about heavyweight and light heavyweight divisions across the board. And I think it's really kind of like now what um, for not only McGeary, but for the division as a whole. Yeah, once again, you have it where it's kind of top heavy. You got Davis, uh, King Mo fights a light heavyweight or heavyweight, and you got Bader. I mean, Vassell, Vassell's a good fighter and he's had some good wins, but he's also had some losses. And he fought King Mo about a year and a half ago, and King Mo beat him within an inch of his life. I mean, anybody, please watch that dynamite dynamite car. He beat him within an inch of his life, so he's not going to be considered right up there for the the uh, elite names right now. He's going to have to get another big win, possibly two, before he can be he mentioned against a King Mo or a Phil Davis or Ryan Bader. Um, Liam McGeary still has talent. He's a talented guy. He he has some stand up skills. He has some athleticism. He has some very good grappling. It's just he's totally – he hasn't focused enough on his wrestling or his ability to create scrambles, and he's too willing to engage in a ground fight from the bottom. And everybody in, in MMA knows nowadays you can't just concede that you're going to be on the bottom and work for submissions. They're not giving you points for almost finishing submissions and almost hitting switches and almost, almost uh, reversing guys. You know that. You, you're, you've competed. You've helped people prepare, prepare for, for competition. Nobody tells anybody, just stay on your back and work for a submission. If you're forced to stay on your back, you work for a submission. You don't ever recommend it because it's easier nope. to defend from the top than it is for you to submit from the bottom. That's, and if his corner is telling him to do that, he needs to get a new corner because that's, that's just bad advice. I wouldn't recommend that when I've consulted guys. I know you've helped train guys. I know you wouldn't tell anybody, hey, just stay on the bottom and try and submit them. I know you wouldn't say that. You're a smart guy. You're not saying that. No. That's how so you lose fights. Exactly. And and not only did he lose, I mean, even if he lost the decision, he was dominated. And to get finished, when he's supposed to be a submission guy, it's just a huge setback. So once again, we have three or four guys up at the top of the light heavyweight, and we don't have a lot of, other, of legitimate names past that point. So it's still named guys with top-notch UFC talent, but who, we, who do we have after that first four or five? Even after McGeary, the talent level drops three or four tiers after him. So once again, it's a matter of depth all over again. Right now, the deepest the division they probably have, um, it's probably 155. It's probably the deepest one because they're still having rematches. They recently had the Strauss Pitbull rematch number four. They're still having rematches. They're still trying to sign people. You know, they, they're, they're a work in progress. But at the top end, they have enough talent for everybody. But once you get past that top five, top seven in every division, you pretty much have nothing. They're still trying to fill that out so they can have legitimate cards and bring people up and use people as gatekeepers and use and have rookies who are on their way up. They, they still haven't developed that yet. It's still very top heavy. But like I said, they're doing better, but it's still very top heavy. That takes a couple of years to 
to repair, and it takes a couple of years to really flesh out, fill out a division. It really does. It, def- it definitely takes a long time to do it. I think we're going to see that with the women's flyweight division that's coming up in the UFC. Oh, they're, doing great job with that. they're doing a spectacular job with that. They are. They 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 really are. They really are. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I I watched some of the coverage on the the tryouts from the other day, so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that um, division as a whole. Yeah, the, and the thing is that they were the ones who first came out with that division. So now the UFC is following suit. But the good thing for them is a lot of women are trying to get bigger paydays. And Invicta is a good start. Not everybody's going to make it to the UFC. So what do you do until you get to the UFC? Can you afford to just be on Invicta cards the whole time? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Maybe Bellator is the, the next option. All the young talent isn't going to be able to make it in the UFC or even get a shot because they're going to be, they have certain plans put in place and they already have fighters dropping from a weight and moving up from a weight. So all that young talent's not going to be in there. They got to find another North American organization to be on. And this one's ratings are going up. This one's getting a little bit more legitimacy. And this is the one who actually set the division. The UFC is following Bellator. They didn't have this division. They were having fighters thinking about leaving so they could go to this division. Valerie Turno being the best example. So the UFC had to make a counter counter move because they had people who, could, who couldn't compete at 35 and couldn't compete at straw weight. And they, they had to start looking at their options as their careers started getting closer to an end. And the UFC was going to have to make some very tough decisions and be behind Bellator once again because Bellator has an actual legitimate featherweight champion and a legitimate featherweight division. So they're already behind them then, and they're behind them as far as the straw weight. And they don't, and that, in the eye of public opinion, starts to make them look a little suspect because to be on, let's just be honest, Scott Coker is essentially giving the UFC their whole bantamweight division. He basically set that up when they bought Strikeforce out for him. So he's always been ahead of the curve in the UFC when it comes to women's fights. And once again, he's ahead of the curve with them. He's just got to get the men. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. And I definitely think I like what he's doing over there, especially with some of the signings that he has um, over the head that he's made and the moves that he's willing, some of the people that he's definitely willing to talk to and talk to as soon as they come out of a, um, out of a contract signing. We definitely do have an important contract signing that I want to talk about later on in the show as well, too. Um, did anything else from Bellator 179 stand out for you? That was really what I was looking for. Those those were the two fights that I had marked down, and those are the ones I think have the biggest effect across the mixed martial arts um, community and, and and as it pertains to Bellator. You know, those, those are the two fights that are, like I said, it, it established the next welterweight title challenger, and even though I don't think Vassell or McGarry was going to set up for the next light heavyweight challenger, it still was an important fight in the light heavy, light heavyweight division. You know, like I said, now Vassell's probably maybe a fighter or two away from, from a possible uh, title shot. Yeah, he's definitely a um, time a, a little while a little distance away from a title shot. But and there's also another guy who is, and that's Alexander Gustafsson. Actually, him and Glover to show are kind of in the same position, where they continue to have wins in the UFC light heavyweight division, but they've lost key fights that will keep them out of the title picture. But they're still paired to face off this weekend, as um. They will headline UFC Fight Night 109. So break this fight down for me and tell me what you think. Uh, um, it's the best fight on the card. The card isn't, I mean, you've seen the card. It's its not spectacular. Um, At it, all. It, it's a good fight. It's a pay-per-view worthy fight. Once again, it's in the light heavyweight division. And it's, I mean, even though Alexander Gustafsson's a fairly young guy in the sense of 
fighting and being in the UFC, he, he's like an old guy too. And so you have him and you have Teixeira, two guys who haven't been able to get it done. They weren't, neither one was able to beat John Jones. Uh, Gustafsson got a second crack at it, lost to Daniel Cormier. And then when he fought the number three light heavyweight, he got smashed up by Anthony Johnson. So Gustafsson's taken quite a few hits in the past couple of years. And his standing as an elite light heavyweight is just a matter of him beating up on the other second and third tier light heavyweights and him. Uh, that, that's essentially it. I mean, his whole reputation was made off of giving John Jones a very tough fight. The second part of his reputation was made off of giving Daniel Cormier a very tough fight. His reputation hasn't actually been made off of beating elite competition. If you look at his record, all the guys who would have been elite are guys who have beaten them. Phil Davis was considered to be a prospect who's going to be elite, submitted him. John Jones beat him by decision. Daniel Cormier beat him by decision. Anthony Johnson beat him by knockout. So he hasn't really beaten a in their prime top level at the full height of his abilities light heavyweight I, I don't know that he's beat one in his entire his entire time in the UFC to be quite honest you look at his resume it it's not the sturdiest I think Jimmy Mana was one of the better wins on his his um ledger and Mana was hot right now but nobody thinks Mana will can beat Jones com, Jones Cormier or even could have beat Johnson because he lost to Johnson so um it takes some of the shine off the fight um he's long he doesn't he doesn't really fight to his strengths when he fought jones he used his footwork he used his feints he used his movements and he used the full length of his his frame to get get off jabs straight shots kicks uh defend takedowns to push jones back to punch into into clinches but when he fights guys who are shorter than him he tends to fight really tall and he tends to fight really dumb as he he'll get into clinches he'll get hit a lot more than he should get hit and he'll try to kind of put pressure on guys and push them back which I guess is fine I mean that's effective because of the, the amount of volume he throws and the activity he has but it also sets him up for a lot of counters years ago when he fought Shogun Rua Shogun Hua Shogun could have missed that right hand he wasn't able to stop him but he landed the right hand on him repeatedly and as good as Gustafsson's footwork is and as long as he is you think he'd be a better defensive fighter but a lot of guys have hit him a lot. Cormier hit him a lot. Johnson hit him a lot. Jones hit him a lot. He's he's not very elusive in the truest sense of being an elusive mobile fighter. He actually moves around a lot. But to be honest, he gives away his height and he gives away any advantage he has with his footwork and his length. And he'll come in and exchange or he'll come in and get into clinches, which has gotten him into trouble more times than it has been. His footwork isn't super tight. He wastes a lot of energy moving around. And then later in the rounds, if you can keep enough pressure on him, he tends to slow down. So then he starts falling into clinches. He starts standing up a little bit taller. His chin's a little bit more exposed. His upper body movement and his feints start going away, and he starts taking more abuse. And he's not really the most durable guy. He's not a guy who can take a lot of shots and keep going at the same pace. As he slows for cardiovascular and he starts taking punishment, his will to throw shots and his ability to throw a lot of shots tends to taper off a little bit. So in theory, he's in theory given his history he should make this fight more difficult than it should be it should be a fight where he's got advantages in youth and recuperative ability and footwork and mobility in the range of strikes he throws a lot more different kinds of strikes and he throws a lot more strikes than Wilbur Teixeira is to fight dumb which means he's going to give Teixeira opportunities to land that big right hand opportunities to get into clinches 
and opportunities to force into the fence to work on his body and opportunities to take him down against the fence and work him over. Because beating Teixeira is fairly simple. Teixeira, he's an overrated stand-up fighter. Everybody keeps saying how great a stand-up is, how great his power is. Cheers. His power is not outstanding. It's not. I've seen him hit guys with, with whole arsenals of shots, and he beat him up, but he ain't put nobody out. When you're a real power puncher, you don't, you don't land 25, 30, 40, 60 shots around because nobody can stand up to him. You land four or five in a row, you got guys hurt, you're putting them out. So if you're a real power puncher, you never get to throw volume because guys can't stand up to the shots you're throwing. He's not a power puncher. He's a heavy-handed guy who breaks you down with landing well-timed shots. Knocking out Ryan Bader doesn't impress me. Ryan Bader's chin is suspect as fuck. It's always been that suspect. He's a guy who depends on an overhand right. He's got a decent left hook, but he kind of drives his arm when he throws it, so he's open for counters. His footwork isn't super sharp. Aggressively, he doesn't cut down the cage very well. He tends to chase guys. And he tends to load up on that right hand, which means he gives up takedowns repeatedly for anybody willing to time him and duck under that right hand. They're going to take him down left and right. Used to be somewhat active as far as the head movement and the blocks. It's gotten a step slower because he's gotten a couple years older. He's not as quick as he used to be, and he was never fast, never quick. He's not as mobile as he used to be, and he was never very mobile. And he's, he's, he's starting to be more of a, a, strike, a guy who strikes just to get into clinches and just to get takedowns. He doesn't really have good defense. He's not particularly good on the counter. He's got the will to exchange with you, but he doesn't have the skill to do it in a really tight, defensively responsible manner. So while he has the power advantage, and I think he's a better grappler, um, I just I don't think his durability is there anymore, and I, I don't think his conditioning is there. I think Alexander Gustafsson should be able to move around and take him down and grind out a grind out a win. I mean, he should be able to do that. He's around striker he's the he's a more active striker he's the younger guy and he's shown the better cardio and for the most part i think he's shown a better chin i don't i don't like how i don't like how tick share has been responding to getting hit he's gotten outstruck by osp recently got outstruck by johnson and he got us jared cannoneer in his last fight and i think that's a bad recipe for fighting a guy like gustafson who's been resting and training and been itching to fight and is still the younger guy and the fresher guy so I would expect Gustafsson to outwork him. Um, I expect there to be a couple spots of danger because Gustafsson just generally tends to fight really dumb. And um, and I, I expect that to happen. He's always been a guy who's fought good enough. to. He's been good enough to beat the second and third tier guys. Right now, Glover Teixeira, even though he's a name and he's one of the better light heavyweights, is really just a second, a second or third tier light heavyweight. The first tier is Johnson and Jones. I guess Gustafsson would be in that second tier. So maybe maybe, maybe Glover's a third-tier guy. So I, I would probably favor Gustafsson. If some, for some reason Gustafsson loses this fight, he might want to reconsider being in the UFC because he's lost to all the top light heavyweights and he would have lost decisively. And that, that just wouldn't be it. Losing to Jones and Cormier is one thing. Losing to Glover Teixeira at this stage of his career um, to be an elite fighter isn't acceptable in my opinion. And if Glover finds a way to win, which he could, because as we stated, Gustafsson is tends to fight dumb and, and Glover can still hit and he's a pretty good wrestler and a good submission guy. He, so he has opportunities to win more about Gustafsson than it says about Teixeira. Because I don't think Teixeira has another, he might have another year, two years in the sport. I, I, I really don't like how he's been responding to getting hit in the past couple of fights. And I haven't liked how he's slowed down as far as his movement, his speed and his reaction time. So I... I'd probably go Gustafsson, but uh, given how he 
somebody that could quickly turn around, quickly turn around. But I'm going to go with Gustafsson. I think he's got the skills and the ability and the youth to win this fight. I remember the way people used to talk about um, Glover Teixeira when he first came into the organization and how he was such a big boogeyman that was going to be the one to wreck John Jones and how much that commentary has changed since now. Looking at this main event and looking at both the guys in it, I could very well see both of these men out of the UFC next year, to be honest with you. Um, I could see Gustafsson becoming one of those guys that gets paid so much that when his um, his next deal is up, you wonder if they're going to be willing to give him the same rate. And Clover's getting up there in age. Um, you, I, you know, I don't know. The only thing that I think would keep them around is the fact that the light heavyweight divisions are so sparse on talent. But outside of that, man, I don't. I in my opinion, this isn't the type of main event that makes me stop and watch. It's the type of main event that we're going to be getting within with the UFC right now. But I don't know what the organization does with both of these men win or lose. I almost think you have to get rid of them. And listen, hear me out when you say this. Now, you're saying there's talent, but think about it this way. The guys coming, the light heavyweight division is so thin that a guy who puts two, one or two wins together is instantly thrown in against guys who've got 20 plus experience and training and fighting the world's best. A young guy isn't going to be prepared for that. He doesn't have all the seasoning. He doesn't have the IQ. He doesn't have the awareness to pull out the tricks necessary to get past a faded but still savvy veteran. And so what happens is you have all the veteran guys knocking off all these young guys who may have some potential to move up to the next level. It's kind of what John Fitch was doing at welterweight. He kept on knocking off all these young guys who could, who in a year or two, maybe even three years at the most, could turn into potential contenders, and he knocks them right back down the ranks. So when you have somebody like Teixeira, who's even though he's faded, the reason I say Gustafsson might be able to beat him is because Gustafsson's already faced the elite. He's gone to decisions with the elite. He, he He's young, but he has some veteran savvy. He just fights stupid, but even when he fights dumb, nine times out of ten, unless you're an elite guy, he finds a way to beat you based off of pace and and well-timed shots and activity. A lot of these younger guys, they don't have that. They don't know the ebb and flow of a fight. They don't know the little tricks. They don't know all the little veteran moves and and well-timed takedowns and setups that are going to allow, allow somebody like Gover Teixeira to survive, even though his stand-up's taking a step back, even though his physical ability is taking a step back. These guys kind of block up the light heavyweight division and they keep on knocking off the young guys so you don't have time to develop them because they get finished or they get so comically dominated like Cannoneer did against Teixeira that you got to sit this guy back all the way to the back of the line because he was so easily and so clearly taken down and controlled on the ground it wasn't even competitive it was comically bad so you can't put that guy in with a name right away because you've exposed him and the fans aren't going to buy it so how do you develop young guys when you have these old guys just kicking the crap out of him, sending him right back down to the line. What's funny is, you know, you kind of compare that to what Frankie Edgar did to Yair Rodriguez this past weekend or whenever that fight was. And he basically just pushed that guy right back down. He, put, he didn't push Yair that far down, but he reminded everybody, hey, I'm not quite ready to go away right now. And that is exactly what both Gustafsson and um, Teixeira do if you leave yeah, them where they are. Credit. You're not giving yourself enough credit on that, Rafael. He pushed him way back down because he showed that Yair Rodriguez is more athlete than fighter and does not have the seasoning and does not have the awareness and might not even have the cage IQ to make 
to do the simple things that won't get him in a one-sided beating. I saw that fight. That was just the dumbest, dumbest reaction to when he was fighting. For, I mean, he gave up a takedown trying to go for a submission against Frankie Edgar. Frankie Edgar isn't Andre Feely and, and Charles Rosa and and these other guys he fought who were like third top ranked 30 or 20 or something in the world. This is former lightweight champion. This is former featherweight featherweight title challenger. This is one of the all-time greats who's still competing at a high level. And you really just give up and accept being on the bottom and try to outgrapple him or work him from your guard? What, what sense does that make? Who's in his corner telling him this is a good idea? And how does he not in and of himself, if he's really the next thing, understand that there's no way I'm going to finish this guy from the ground. There, it's not happening. I'm not going to be able to athlete my way into a knee bar or into an arm bar or into explosive. I have to be able to go through every single step. When you're fighting a guy who's seasoned and experienced on the ground and it's face guys of the caliber that Frankie Edgar's fought, you can't just explode into submission. You, you're a submission guy. You have to know every single step and you have to know various setups to sneak into them or to off balance them to get back to your feet or to create an opening for the submission. Yair Rodriguez has none of that finesse, none of that subtlety in his game, none of that layers. He just got beat up. He got grown man on national TV after talking about all that stuff about, I can knock out Frank Yeager. I showed you what I'm about with BJ Penn. He got exposed, dude. He got exposed. He's an athlete with some fighting skill. He is not a legitimate fighter right now because he has too many holes in his game and there are too many guys who can exploit every one of those holes that Frankie Edgar does. Maybe, maybe they can't do it as decisively, but some of those guys are bigger hitters and better submission guys and they'll 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 rough him up and do the same they'll do something very similar to him. He got exposed, he got sent back to the line, he's got to go back to the drawing board. He might need a new camp. That that was embarrassing on so many levels. That was terrible. I'm not cutting him any slack. Yeah, he got all that credit for beating up old man BJ Penn, but that BJ Penn doesn't prepare you for for Frank Yeager. And I don't know who, like I said before, it was going to be the seasoning and the experience that determined that fight. The only chance he had was to make it a high pace, high impact, high energy fight. And this guy didn't even attempt to do that. He tried to engage Frank Yeager in his area strength, letting him have top control. Who tells you to let Frank Yeager get top control on you, and to settle for the guard, and then not try to get back up? That, that that and he paid somebody in a corner to tell him that he paid someone in the corner to prepare him to do that in a fight he paid a camp to prepare him to do that in a fight this is what i'm talking about when we talk about who you pay for a corner yeah i can agree with you on that yeah, I was just embarrassing, dude. <laughs> so i think we got a little sidetracked there i don't remember well yeah we were talking about go over to share on ufc so yeah so we talked about the main event there what else stands out from you for you on this card i mean we got chikonov and odzadamire if i think you said if i can say that right but what else misha um chikonov kind of is an interest is an interesting um name to me right now he's not someone that's going to make me sit and watch this fight but what is there anything else on this card that kind of catches your attention? There's a couple things. I think it's on the Fight Pass card, and, and this isn't going to be a sexy pick or a big name. This this doesn't bring ratings. This isn't a big-name fighter. But he's interesting because of the nature of how he got the BOC. Marcin Held. Yep, I knew you wanted to go there. I knew you weren't going there. It seems like they're trying to give him a win because, yeah, let's say he, he lost that fight to Joe Lazon. Let's say he really won it. The fact of the matter is, he was coming off of winning streaks in Bellator. He was considered a top welterweight in Bellator, and they gave him two fights. He should have dominated and should have finished both guys. 
He should have finished Bill. I don't want to hear that it was a bad decision. Joe Lazon is a great fighter. He's got a great heart. He's very tough. But every time he's faced a certain caliber of, of athleticism and skill, he's essentially gotten smoked at this point in his career. Get it done. He couldn't get it done. So, yeah, it was a bad decision. My question is, why didn't you blow him away just like every young young lion who comes in who wants to make a name for himself has done against Joe Lozon in the past two or three years? Because you couldn't. It shouldn't have even came to that point. Lozon was able to hang in and, and put some work in, and, yeah, it was a bad decision. But he shouldn't have gone to that point. And let's not overlook the fact that he fought Diego Sanchez, and Diego Sanchez essentially straight up and down beat him up. There was no bad decision. There was no bad judging. Sanchez roughed him up on the feet, roughed him up on the ground, defended submissions, out wrestled him, out grappled him, and basically made him look like a third tier lightweight. Diego Sanchez, the same guy who, who's gotten repeatedly smoked by everybody with the pulse in the division. So now that it seems like they're trying to give Marcin Held a win, and I'm interested to see if he actually gets it because one more loss and this, this signing that looked like it was such a big signing and a developing a new contender in the lightweight division looks like a looks like a waste of a signing. I mean, bad decision or not, he lost to Lozon. He got crushed by Diego Sanchez. He's in a win or lose. He's in a must win, and he needs a win, and he needs a win impressively. He can buy it in a win in a fight like this. Ain't going to get it done for him. So I, I hope that he has really tightened up his game, and he's coming there to put on a show and coming there to get a decisive, dominant win. Because anything less, I think he'll be looking for – he's beginning a pink slip in the very, very near future, especially with the way they're going to be making adjustments in the UFC. People are going to need to be cut. Fat's going to be need to be trimmed. And a guy who lost to, clearly lost to Diego Sanchez and disputed losses to Joe Lazan. And if he loses on Saturday, I, they don't, they don't have, they don't have room for that kind of fighter. In my opinion, they don't have any room for that kind of guy. So I'm interested to see what he does and how he comes out. And if he can um, really get back on track to kind of catch back with some of the momentum he had when he came over. Yeah, man, you're definitely spot on today because um, Marcin Hell was going to be the name I was going to point to as well because he he's someone who excites me. I mean, like I love his background. I know you um, are aware of that, and I'm wondering how is that going to transition in, into the UFC? And it hasn't transitioned well so far, as as you said. You know, everything you said was just definitely spot on right there. And he needs to get this win. And you're right. Again, it does look like they're kind of trying to put him in a position to get a solid victory here. Um, but I think, I definitely think he needs to get this win and he needs to get this win in a, a spectacular fashion because the UFC is not in that game right now of keeping guys around for namesake. They'll gladly let him go, go right back to Bellator or go somewhere else. Oh, he, he ain't going to go right back to Bellator because Bellator ain't taking a guy off a three fight losing streak. One of those losses coming to Diego Sanchez and some other, some guy who nobody's ever heard of in the mainstream mixed martial arts. It, this is a, if he loses Saturday, he's going to be out of the UFC very soon, and he's going to have to work in some regional organizations to work his way back up to Bellator. Because it wasn't like he was a champion in Bellator either. I think Will Brooks uh, defeated him a, in, in a fight for the title at one point. So yeah, he uh, he 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 did he did that. This is a very important fight for him. And I, I hope he's I hope he's prepared appropriately because what he's been doing, what worked in Bellator or worked most of the time Bellator hasn't worked for him very much. And he shows some improvement in the Lausanne fight. I, I'm not going to deny him that, but he, he needs to win this fight. Otherwise, it's it's going to be crash. It won't be going to the second best organization. It's going to be third or possibly fourth and really have to build himself back up. Um, outside of him, there's a Ben Saunders. 
once again, not another big name guy, but a guy who's been in the UFC and competed at a high level UFC and Bellator. And he's a guy who um, a lot of people wouldn't have picked to still be competing in any major, major organization, much less in a main card. When he came off the Ultimate Fighter, he seemed like a guy with good skills, um, some ability and some toughness, but a guy who was just too flawed or likely to really make a go for it. And he resuscitated his career in Bellator, and then he came over to UFC, and he's he hasn't been unspectacular, but he's probably gone much further than anybody would have predicted. And I'm always interested in seeing what he what he does or how he fights, given that he's managed to career out of mixed martial arts when so many guys who had better talent and came from more established camps and had better wins initially haven't been able to last as long. I'm, I'm very impressed with guys like him who find ways to fit in and find ways to still stay in the game at the highest levels. I'm with you on that there, man. I'm with you on that. Um, it's, and, it's, and it's weird because, you know, this isn't a quiet MMA weekend, but it's definitely not one that kind of jumps off the page when it comes to um, major, major, major fights that make you want to stop and sit down in front of the television. Um, I want to definitely touch on some of the news stories from this week. We got quite a bit. Um, the first one is Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero. You know, they've been tagged to face each other for a middle, middle, excuse me, an interim middleweight title um, in the coming months. I'm not sure if they actually pegged an event for that, but they definitely have put these two guys together. And it's kind of faced, it faced some criticism from Gegard Mousasi. We'll talk about him in a minute. Um, from Michael Bisbing as well, but Whitaker versus Romero. Break this fight down for me because I have a, I hear a lot of people talking about Whitaker being the future and the face of this division, but I think he has a very tough opponent in Romero. However, I believe this is a fight that Whitaker can win with the combination of you know jabbing and footwork, keeping Joel away from him because Joel you know he's a one shot one shot big power type of fighter and you know that kind of plays into Whitaker's ability to move and his quickness but he cannot let Romero get his hands on him. First of all before I get into this I don't want to hear anything from Michael Bisping because beating up Dan Henderson doesn't mean you have the right to call out anybody. He hasn't been facing legitimately elite ranked middleweights in a while so he can't call out criticism anything. And Gegard Musasi uh, his best win recently was um, Chris Weidman. And you already know how I feel about Chris Weidman. That dude's already been exposed twice before Musasi got the leftovers to finish him off. And Weidman's a good guy, but it, right now he's he's not elite. He's not a top 10 middleweight. He might not even be a top 15 middleweight. Musasi's last couple years of fighting, beating up Uriah Hall, Vitor Belfort, Tallies Latis, that's not better than anybody that Yoel Romero and... Um, and Robert Whitaker beat, in fact, Robert Whitaker and Joel Romero beat Jacare, who stomped, who literally curb stomped Musasi. And Romero knocked out Mashida, who outclassed, outslicked, and out hustled Musasi. So the two guys they've beaten are much better than the guys that Musasi's beaten. And they've both beaten guys who clearly, clearly and dominantly beat Musasi. So I don't want to hear anything from Masasi. I know he's he's talking a lot now and he's very clever and everybody loves how he, oh, look at Moose talking trash now. He's he's spin facts. In this case, he is not spin facts. He is spitting lies. Look at the fight record. Look at who he's fought. And tell me again that he deserves to be in this matchup. He doesn't. He needs to go fight Luke Rockhold and he put himself in position to fight for an interim title belt. He ain't earned it yet. Beating Chris Weidman wasn't enough for me. I did it because I predicted it that way. 
it ain't enough for me. It's not better than beating Jacare, knocking out Jacare. It ain't better than knocking out Machida. You know, that it, you know, he didn't even it it just wasn't enough. So he needs to take a step back and keep on working or go to Bellator since they're not paying him enough money. One or the other. But this nonsense about him being in the fight, he doesn't belong in it. I agree with you as far as the Whitaker thing. The thing with Romero is Romero's a very smart guy. People don't understand how smart he is, but he's very smart. He reads people very well. He faints a lot. He kind of figures out how you're defending things. And he's a good enough athlete. And he's a physically powerful and durable enough guy that you're not, even if you take him down, you can't just rest. Taking him down isn't a rest because he's got the athleticism to just explode out. But he's also got the technical wrestling skill to work into a position and slowly gain a position and then work his way out. So he can combine, but he can go either, he can go technical escapes and get back to his feet and create scambles, or he can just go pure athleticism, or he can use technique and use that extra horsepower to create a point of emphasis in his escape. So he's got that advantage. So you're always working, you're working to get him down, you're working to keep him down. And on his feet, while he isn't a totally comprehensive striker, he's got very good counters, He's got very good timing and he's got world-class power on the feet. He knocking out um, the Yoda Machida, um, basically putting Chris Whiteman six feet under and the way he rocked Jacare early, he could have finished him. I think he kind of tapered off a little bit. And the way he finished Derek Brunson shows that this guy's got fighting in power. The problem is he waits a little bit too much. If you are defensively responsible and, and that, that's the key word. You can't chase him. You can't just start throwing wild. You can't get off balance. You have to be have aggression, but it has to be controlled aggression. You have to have a pace, but it has to be a consistent pace that you can build on. It can't be high, low, high, low, where you come out hard and you make him work. And then little by little, you start slowing or your punches start getting a little wide or your footwork starts getting a little muddy. It can't be that. You have to have a pace that you can maintain defensive responsibility and consistency in, which is something Tim Kennedy couldn't do, which is something which is something uh, Machida couldn't do in that small cage. is something Derek Brunson is totally awful at. That dude walks into counters like I walk into IHOP for breakfast all day, every day. So you have to be measured in it. And the thing about the thing that makes it a tough matchup for Whit matchup for your Romero is that Whitaker is a physically tough. He took some bombs from Brunson, and Brunson rocked, rocked him a couple times, but Brunson never put him out. He took some big shots from Brunson. He took some big shots from Jacare. And Jacare is not the most finesse striker there is. You know, as T.P. Grant discussed with us, he's not super technical, but he's got a lot of athleticism. Yeah, he's lost a step, but he still hits hard. He still punches hard. He still kicks hard. He's still hard and clinches. And Whitaker was able to la take the shots and stand in those clinches with them. When he fought Brunson, he was able to defend takedowns and take Brunson's best shots. And Brunson's a fairly big hitter himself. So now the issue becomes, is Whitaker going to be able to be measured enough in his offense that he's going to be able to apply that kind of pressure? And that's the thing that makes Whitaker the most dangerous guy at this weight class, in my opinion. He can, he alternates between intense aggression and activity and measured aggression and power. He consistently uses his jab. He uses fakes with his shoulder. He uses feints with his feet. He uses feints with his hand to create openings. He gets you biting on him, and then he doesn't just throw. He'll throw one hard shot with big power on it, but he always follows up with a combination and an exit with his, with his footwork. So he'll throw that big shot, whether he lands it or he misses it. He's got three or four shots coming in after that. Then he gets off at an angle, and then he gets back 
on you and starts overwhelming you. And Romero's the kind of guy who can be outworked. When he fought Chris Weidman, Weidman was essentially outworking him because Romero saves up his, his offense and his energy and he fights in spots. He explodes in these huge spots of offense. Weidman was getting gassed. Weidman was getting tired from working to try and keep him down and control him. Weidman ran into that knee. Uh, Tim Kennedy was tired, had been hurt earlier. He was angry about the stool, so he ran in and he got countered. Derek Brunson ran in wild as he always does and got countered. Whitaker is not going to do that. Whitaker is tiptoes on the line between being totally out of control and just having a whole lot of measured, strategic, structured, high activity offense. And that's going to be the difference because he can apply a high pace, but still remain defensively responsible. He can throw a series of punches and mix up the speeds. It can be light, light, medium, medium, then hit you with the power. And he always has that jab. He never gets away from his jab, no matter what kind of flurries, kicks, side kicks, snap kicks he throws. He never gets away from that jab, whether he's fainting it to control you and acts as line of defense. He's using it to land. He's using it to gauge distance or he's using it to set up his other shots. He's got that layer, those layers in his offense and his defense that allows him the freedom to come in and set a pace. Because when he's throwing his stuff, it's all off a of feint. It's all off that jab. It's all off a of front kick. You never know how it's coming because he kind of switches up the cadence, switches up the power, and switches up the setup. I think he overloads Romero with too many variations that doesn't give Romero the opportunity to land that big counter. And that's what Romero's going to have to do. He's going to land that one big counter and come in to finish. I don't think he lands it. I think he's the, he's going to have to fight for takedowns. I think there's a good chance that Robert Whitaker can take him down and that Whitaker basically outworks him and then ends up finishing him. Because unlike um, Kennedy, who once again is stand-up kind of wild and he gets over-aggressive, unlike Brunson, who hits hard but also is wild and gets, and gets aggressive, Whitaker's got the footwork, he's got the poise, he's got the variation in his offense to apply a pace that's going to wear Romero down. And he's got the discipline and the technique and the power to close the show on him when he gets tired. And I think that's going to actually be the difference. It's going to be too much energy trying to get those takedowns, too much energy having to be taking a series of shots or having to defend a series of strikes and, and feints from Robert Whitaker throughout a five-round fight. I think he, he finishes them inside of five, probably, probably between third round and fourth round. Wow. And we got a new champion. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Finishes him within five. Um, that'll be a hell of a way to um, kind of submit himself. And I love the name. You know, I love, I, I love it. You know, Whitaker has been someone who um, I'm, I'm kind of getting excited to, to, to see. I love the nickname. People are calling him Bobby Knuckles. And like that's just kind of like, that's like it for me. And I like this. I like his growth. I like what's happening in his career right now at this point in time. And I would definitely love to see him get the win because. It will create some new intrigue around the middleweight division. It's and it's already interesting in, interesting enough because you have guys like Musasi there, you have um, Bisbing still there, you have Luke Rockhold who people isn't talking aren't talking about right now. So you have guys who you have guys who are still there who um, create some interesting fights for uh, Whitaker if he was to come out of this bout with the uh, title. And let, let me just say one last thing. I know we all know that. We all know that Michael Bisping is ducking Romero. Let's let's not try and lie and well, he just wants to make money. He earned it. You're the title. You're the champion. The same you, same way you call out other guys for wanting money fights, you deserve to get called out for not wanting a money fight. But I'm gonna I'm gonna make an unpopular opinion. I'm gonna say something that's unpopular. I'm gonna say something that people who say that Bisping is ducking Romero are gonna say that's lunacy and Shawan, you don't know what you're talking about. Even though my record says that I know what I'm talking about, could beat Romero. 
Bisping and, and Whitaker have a lot of similarities. Bisping, in my opinion, isn't as defensively responsible as Whitaker. He doesn't have that his I don't think his jab is as sharp as Whitaker. And because he doesn't have that TMA traditional martial arts background, I think his timing isn't quite as sharp. He relays he relies a little bit more on volume than Whitaker does. But essentially, Romero would have to land singular big shots on him to win. Romero is not going to put volume out. He can't maintain a pace. He can't maintain a pace, first of all, which is my first rule I talk to any fire. Do not set a pace you cannot maintain, much less the pace you can't build on. He can't maintain a pace. He can't build on a pace. He's all picking spots for explosion. I know Dan Henderson's an old man. I know he's not what he used to be, but what can Dan Henderson still do? Hit like a mofo like a mofo neither one of them can maintain a pace neither one of them can be defensively responsible when they get tired it's very possible that if Romero doesn't land some fight altering shot then Michael Bisping could just outwork him just outwork him with volume and movement and feints and a variety of kicks and punches he's done it to guys before he's done it to guys with better cardio and guys with more consistency than yo Romero yeah Romero's got that power and he's got the takedowns but Romero's not a takedown machine, and he's not exactly the greatest at defending takedowns either. Michael Bisping could, in fact, beat him in a decision. I'm not saying that he would. I'm not guaranteeing it. But I definitely see, definitely see an avenue to where Michael Bisping could beat Yo Romero in a similar fashion that Robert Whitaker would be beating Yo Romero. It's not impossible. He might be ducking him because he knows he's in a tougher fight. I don't think he's ducking him because he doesn't think he can beat him. Because I think there are very clear and obvious holes in Romero's game, whether it's his, his athleticism, his cardio, or his skills, that Michael Bisping's style completely takes advantage of. And they're the same holes I'm mentioning with Robert Whitaker, with the slight variation being Whitaker's front kick and the timing he has from that traditional martial arts background he has. But, but Bisping can beat Romero. Make no mistake about it. He might not want it because it's tough and he may lose, but he's capable of being Romero. And anybody, a lot of people might not agree with me, but I, I know what I see. And he can out hustle him. He can he can out hustle him over five. Yeah, and I I can I can get with you on that. Um, you know, I think that if this is the biz being that fought, uh, Chell Sonnen, I think he I think he gets that win. I can agree with you there. He 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 was a different type of fighter then. Now I think that he's kind of um, you know, he's no he knows what point he is at at in, in his career, and he just and I don't want to say he's looking. I don't want to say he's looking for the easy fight. That's not the right term, but he's looking for that money fight that he feels like he deserves. And I can kind of I can get with him on that because you know he's been there for so long. He's been there for this organization for so long. I could definitely see that, you know, he's trying to hold out and um, get what he really deserves. He's doing what all, what I'm, I'm sure a family member's pulled you aside and told you this when you've been working really hard at a job. It's something my dad has routinely told me. Working hard's great. It's nice to know that you can work hard, but at some point you need to learn how to work smart. A fight's a fight. Mm-hmm. No matter how easy it is, you can get hurt, you can lose, you can take damage. All he's trying to do is work smart. If he can get if he can get top notch money to fight Romero, he'll fight him because it's still a fight. But he's trying to work smart. He's already to him, he's already done all the hard work. I fought all the name guys, I fought all the cheaters, I fought all the big punchers. I've taken all the humiliation of getting knocked out by Dan Henderson. I and submitted by Rockhold. It's my time to get what I've earned. I've already done the hard work. Now I'm doing the smart work. If I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose getting paid for that. But as a competitor and 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 just being a martial artist and having the dignity of the position i don't see how you can't lose a little respect for him i get it i get it i'm not judging you like i get why people do certain things it doesn't mean i agree with them doing certain things 
yeah, I'm definitely rocking with you on that. Let's move on to the next story here because, you know, I kind of segued a bit, a little bit. Gagarin Musasi, he's getting into contract disputes with the UFC because, you know, his contract terms are up. There was a rumor that came out that he signed a new deal, but it doesn't look like that's quite apparent because he doesn't believe that they're offering him enough money. What do you think about this? Do you think he's going to end up leaving the organization or will they come around to find a way to keeping Musasi on, um, on their, their payroll? The question isn't whether they're offering him good money, because I think they are offering him good money. I don't know, but I think they're offering him good money. But let's let's clear up a few things. Musasi beat Chris Weidman, who's on a two-fight losing streak with two KOs. He beat up Vitor Belfort. When's the last time Vitor's won a fight? Exactly? Uh, uh, Vitor? No. Yeah. Dan Henderson? Yeah, yeah probably. And how, Dan that, was, that was years ago. That was 2015. He beat Uriah. He beat Uriah Hall up, but that's after Uriah Hall one shot at him into an upset KO loss, and he lost to Jacare, and he lost to Machida, and he's beat up some no names in between at Dolly's latest. Yeah, that's great. It's fabulous. That's not an elite resume at all. So based off his wins, does he deserve to get top money? I don't know. I don't see any top money top money wins on the on that resume. And based off his appeal, yeah, a lot of hardcore fans might think he's funny and think he's amusing. But if so many hardcore fans love him and so many fans think he deserves the money he paid, then why aren't you buying the pay-per-views and watching his fight so the ratings reflected and they have to pay him? If you want these guys to get paid more money, you need to support them more to get them more money. The UFC looks at Twitter followers. They look at ratings. They look at all that stuff. If the people you want to get paid more have better ratings on Fight Pass, have better ratings on the prelims, have better ratings in pay-per-view, have better ratings on the, have more Twitter activity in there. And when people set up interviews, it gets 300,000 clicks and people do articles, it gets 400,000 clicks. They would get paid more. I'm tired of fans keep telling me, I wish he got paid more. You ain't supporting them enough to get him paid more. And his people should know he is not a big enough draw, nor has he beat enough elite caliber guys to where he could even claim to get more money. I get why he wants it. He's skilled enough to get it. But what has he really done to get paid more money? He wasn't a champion. He he beat a guy on a two-fight losing streak. He beat another guy on a, like a six or seven-fight losing streak. What does that mean? More? Not in my mind. Honestly, I would think he should just go to Bellator. Scott Coker would be glad to have him. He could fight a light heavyweight there. He could fight a middleweight there. He'd probably get a title shot with the quickness in either division. And Scott Coker likes him. Scott Coker respects him. Scott Coker needs another name coming off a big win. Scott Coker is going to pay him money, the money he wants to get or closer to it, or he'll have more of an opportunity. Think about how much Rory McDonald made just this weekend. Was it $400,000, I think? Oh, I don't even see why he's messing around with the UFC. If they don't want to pay him, what's the point of arguing with him? He's not getting a title shot, I'll tell you that much. So what's the point of arguing with him? Jacques Ray signed. He ain't getting no title shot. Even if he wanted one, he's not getting a title shot. You and you feel they're not respecting you. They're not giving you the opportunities you want. There. It's like being in a relationship with somebody who doesn't work, spends your money, and cheats on you. And you keep complaining, well, she's such a pain or he's such a bum. You're with them. What does that make you? Good, some good, some good, um, good points there, man. Definitely some good points. I don't think he's going to end up with um, the UFC. I think they're kind of going to. I think they're going to let him go because, as you said, you know, they're at a point right now where they're all about the dollar signs. They're all about what, how many, but at, how many asses do you put in the seats, and how many people do you put um, in front of their television screens? And Musasi may not be that guy right now, so we may see him leaving 
to go to Bellator where I think he'll get have a more financial opportunity and maybe he'll get the opportunity to, to be the star that he really wants um, to be. I think he should just have some dignity about it. I, I, it's like it's a, it's why I respected Ally Quinta because when he complained about the money, what did he do? Went to real estate, made some money. He came back when he felt like it. He's doing what he wants. He's saying what he wants because he has another line of income. He doesn't need this crap. He can say whatever he wants. He doesn't have to pick his words and take these veiled shots like some rapper who makes some veiled comment so that he can say I didn't really say that. He can just say what he wants. You can't talk this kind of stuff and then back off. It's like a girl saying, hey, if you don't marry me at the end of this year, I'm leaving. Then the year comes, you don't ask her to marry you, and then she stays. People think it makes you look bad. No, it makes her look bad. You put a, you put a deadline. You said you had certain demands, and then when it came to backing them up, you totally caved. If they ain't paying you, just leave. Leave the offer table. Just go somewhere else. If nothing else, I mean, it might not make sense for him financially, but I get it. He, he was, I would get his – he, he'd have – my respect. He'd go to ACB and in Russia. He'd go to Bellator. He'd go to Risen. They love him in Japan. It ain't like he ain't got options. Like, what, what's he doing? He definitely does like, have what? options. And he's still what, what relatively he young too. He's still relatively yeah, exactly. He's still relatively yeah, he's young. young. And he's on a and he's on a winning streak. You know, it, it's like staying with a bum when you have a multi-millionaire who wants to be with you, or staying with some chick who cheats on you when you have this girl who's a model who who's gonna spend all her money on you and spend all her time with you. Oh, I don't know, man. I really like this girl who cheats on me. What? Have some dignity, dude. I'm losing respect for you. Just having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's look at some of these other fights that were announced this week. We got um, Korean Zombie and Ricardo Lamas and Aljamain Sterling fighting Hen and Burrell. Um, of those two fights, which one jumps off the page to you the most? Which one's most um, intriguing for you? The most intriguing, and and I have no faith in the, the supposed favorites in these fights, which should be Lamaze and Sterling. No faith in either one of them. Lamaze always loses against a certain caliber guy. The Korean zombie is the caliber guy he usually loses to. And Sterling, I know Burrell, if Burrell has gotten his weight issues under control, like where he's healthy and he's making weight, and he's, and he's been off for a while. He's been active, but he's been off for a while. If he's actually in halfway decent shape, this is going to be a very bad night for Mr. Sterling. Burrell's got better all-round striking. He's a big, strong, and long guy. And Sterling is athletic and good as he is in scrambles and um, and submissions. The fact of the matter is, even when Burrell was a weight drain, shell of himself, literally a walking dead zombie who could barely stand, TJ Dillashaw still couldn't take him down. Still couldn't get him down. Not for the life of him. Dillashaw could not get this man down. And now you're going to have Aljamain Sterling, a guy who's not great with his shots, who's athletic, but not the greatest takedown guy in the world, is going to somehow get brow down. And his takedowns are how he he defends strikes. He's not good in the pocket defending strikes. And now he's facing a guy who's long and he got dynamic kicks. So he can't use his kicks as a line of defense either. He's going to be susceptible to getting countered with kicks or being attacked with kicks and having to defend himself. So his biggest lines of defense, which are his kicks and range and his athleticism and takedowns have been eliminated. Now it comes down to how good his hands are, how good his footwork is. Neither one of them is that good. His best bet is that he can keep shooting takedowns and trying to force scrambles and, and force transitions where he can get to Burrell's body and work him over and kind of gas him. But if Burrell's in shape, Brow's making weight, and we'll know we'll know before the fight if he is. If he is, he's not going to get that takedown. And every time he attempts one, he's going to get punished. Brow on his deathbed 
took like 400 punches from TJ Dillashaw and he still didn't drop. Sterling don't hit like that. He don't throw that kind of volume. He don't throw that kind of power or that kind of intent. His wrestling isn't going to be good enough to get on the ground. What exactly is, is he going to do to Burrell if Burrell is at 100%? I have no idea. I don't know how he wins this unless Burrell's out of shape or weight drained or, or he's just such damaged goods. If he is 50% of who he used to be, he's going to stomp Sterling. Sterling lost to Brian Caraway. He got out-wrestled and out-positioned by Brian Caraway. Brian Caraway is not as big, strong, or dynamic in his transitions or his positioning as Burrell. He also lost to Asuncio, who's a little bit defensively sounder than Burrell, but he doesn't have that power. He doesn't have that takedown defense. I, I don't know. It's a bad matchup. This is, this is a bad matchup. If Burrell's really on point, and I've talked to some people who say that he is, if he is, this is a bad matchup, and it's going to be four losses and, like, five fights for Sterling, who has been underwhelming since he re-signed his new contract with the UFC. He, he held out for more money because he's an elite guy. He wants to get paid like an elite guy. He ain't fighting like an elite guy. He ain't being an elite guy before he got to sign his new contract, and he's lost to every level of competition except for the last fight he fought since he signed the new contract. And even that fight was tight. That fight wasn't that, that impressive. He's talking about retiring if they robbed him. If he would have lost, it wouldn't have been a robbery. He fought well, but he didn't do all that much. And I'm not saying that as a hater. I got nothing against him. I want these fighters to make their money and prosper. But let's let's end the hype of Aljamain Sterling. He He's not what he said he was, and he's not what they thought he was. And if they could take back that signing, I guarantee they would. And this is a bad matchup for him. He better hope that Burrell has a bad weight cut, or Burrell's just so damaged from the weight cuts and the abuse he took from Dillashaw that he ain't got nothing left. Because if he has something left, He's, he's probably going to beat Sterling. He's probably going to beat him and beat him soundly. He might finish him. Right, that's definitely some um, interesting breakdown. And this, this fight kind of jumped off the page to me as well, too. I love Korean Zombie. I, lo- I mean, you know, everyone loves the way he fights. Um, I just don't see him as someone that can become a champion. I don't think he'll he'll get back to that championship status. Um, and I'm definitely glad to see him back since, he, you know, he served his time for the Korean military. Um I I just don't know what's what's really for him at this point in time in the featherweight division. Um, and Sterling, he's kind of someone who I, you know I want to see succeed. I'm not even gonna lie, I want to see him um, succeed, but he just hasn't looked like that type of fighter since signing this new deal. I feel like he's someone who he's someone who fights to win in the wrong way, if that makes sense. Like he kind of like he wants to get up early. But then he he kind of takes his foot off off the gas, and so and, and I don't want to liken it to um to the way uh what's his name um Jorge Masvidal kind of takes his foot off the gas from time to time, but it's not like that. It's just a diff. It's it's a different way where it's like you know you think if he could have mentally pushed the pace a little bit differently that some of the outcomes on some of his fights especially like that brian caraway fight for example would have been a lot different so i think both of these are both really two intriguing fights and i look forward to both of them but um i i can agree these could be some bad matchups for um both of those men that you mentioned i get what you say about sterling he's kind of a front runner now see you're you're a much more structured martial artist. You came up the right way. I, I kind of learned by just going there and getting beat up. So it's really just an open and shut case with me. Sterling is a front runner. If he cannot clearly dominate in certain aspects of the game, 
his effectiveness falls off. When he can't get these takedowns and control guys and clearly dominate and outposition them, he isn't the same guy. The only thing that changed since he re-signed his contract is the level of competition he's fighting. As it's gotten better, his performances have gotten worse. And when he can't dominate, he's no good. The thing about it is Jorge Masvidal, he takes all, he takes his foot off the gas. And trust me, I've had this discussion with people in this camp. I have this discussion with people who know. When I, when I say stuff about certain fighters, I've talked to people who, who know these guys. So I'm not saying things that they haven't heard from me before. You'd be surprised the stuff I'm saying to people. So I'm just going to say it again. He'll dominate around and he'll take his foot off the grass because he felt he's punctuated the fight. He's already won the fight. He won 10-8. This guy's going to have to win two rounds or have a 10-8 round just to, just to salvage a draw. So gas and guys will outwork him, but they won't really put him in bad positions for the most part. They won't really put three, four, five shots on him. They won't rock him. They'll just be slowly outworking him. In the case of Sterling, he can't defend shots. He starts making desperate takedowns. He starts getting touched up on the feet. He starts missing shots. He starts getting gun shy. It, it's a total role reversal. Masvidal feels that that dominance he showed has won him the fight. So he takes his foot off the gas and he starts showboating. He starts slipping, rolling shots, defending takedowns. He gets taken down. He gets right back up. He sticks his tongue out. He feels you're not hurting me. Sterling is actually getting hurt in, and outworked in these fights. Seeing it. Either he's not seeing it or he doesn't, he's not aware enough to see it or he doesn't have the skill enough to change it. Because once those fights started getting out of hand, he couldn't rein him back in. He couldn't rein him back in. Once the fight got tight, at no point could he assert himself or put a stamp on the fight that says, you should go with me. They might have been tight losses, but at no point could he get regain control of the fight once he lost it. Or if he never had it, he can't gain control of the fight. At least Jorge Masvidal, at some point in the fight, shows that he's clearly superior, and then he backs off. Once he's proven his point, once he smacked you around, dropped you, cut you up, taking you down, pounded you around a little bit, he's like, okay, I proved my point. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna cruise. Sterling hasn't done that in his fights. They've been touch and go from the beginning. And he doesn't know how to fight in a touch-and-go competitive fight. He's like a team that's used to being up 50 all the time. And the minute he's in a fight, he's in a game, and it's like 85 to 79, he starts making mistakes because he doesn't know how to act in a tough fight because he's always been up by 50. And now he's making mistakes in the tightest situation because he's not used to having to be competitive and to, and to fight smart and to push and to have to fight through certain spots. He's not used to it. And that's what shows in his fights to me. He's not used to being in tight fights, and he has no idea how to react in them. I can agree with you there again, man. There's definitely some um, some clear breakdown in some of the struggles that he's experienced at this point in his career. Oh, one more thing, one more thing. We have the, Tarant, the Korean Zombie. I agree with you. I don't know that he becomes a champion, but I think people underestimate. They talk about his chin and everything. They underestimate his craft a little bit because when he fought Bermudez, Bermudez was, had been active, had, had a lot of success. And Bermudez was eating him up with that jab, but he noticed when Bermudez was too much and overcommitting, and he made that counter, that uppercut, not everybody can do that. Not everybody has the headiness or the awareness and the IQ and the skill to set up that counter. Because usually an uppercut ain't beating a jab. Most people don't read jab. Most people can't defend a jab, first of all. Most guys in MMA still can't slip a jab. For him to bait him with that jab, get him overcommitted, slip it and counter, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. So he may not be a champion material, but that guy has much more craft and skill that he's given credit for. Everybody talks about how tough he is and the wars he gets in. That dude can actually fight 
fights in, in regards to his counters and his 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 uh offense. You know, he may not be world class, but he he's no pushover. He he's not a guy who's incapable of representing himself well against the very, very best in the division. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you there for sure. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Um, we have one other, a couple other news stories actually I wanted to talk about today. And one is is another fight, another probably I want to call it an unsanctioned bout between uh, Angela Magana and Chris Cyborg. Did you see that video? I saw it. Man, I couldn't, I mean, I don't feel bad. I, you know, I don't, Angela Magana deserved what she got. Period. Um, she deserved to get popped in the mouth, and you can't, you can't. Like, uh, there are people it, in this it, world. Question: Did it did it look like she kind of made a move towards Cyborg first? Because that's what it looked like to me. No, it looked like it to me. It looked like Cyborg was telling her shut up, and she kept running off at the mouth, so she shut her up. It looked like because if you notice, like, looked like she took a step forward or made some kind of gesture, and Cyborg. Uh, no, it, to me, it looked like she, after she got punched in the mouth, she kind of leaned for her because she was about to go to sleep. But outside of that, I mean, no. Like, it, there there are people on this planet who you don't talk shit to and then run into them in the street and keep talking shit. I got a feeling that Chris Cyborg is one of those people. And she she's proved a point. Like, yeah, that people may say, oh, you know, Magana's a straw weight. She's smaller than her, blah, blah, blah. Okay, maybe. But... Now, you I, still I, should, yeah, I'm with you. You still should know better. I don't want to hear that. If you knew you were straw weight when you opened your mouth. You knew you were straw weight when you were on Twitter. And it's different. You she wasn't criticizing her fight game like, oh, she relies on strength too much. She doesn't use enough of her, her finesse. I haven't seen her grappling. I haven't seen her submission. I haven't seen her off the back. She's not giving any sort of technical assessment at all. Her character, after her looks, after her her image, her integrity. She's she's insulting her any minute, and she, you know what weight class you are when you opened your mouth. Don't come to me with, oh, she's a featherweight and she's a huge 180. I don't want to hear that. You knew the situation you were getting into when you opened your mouth to talk stuff. And if she comes up to you and says, did you say that, and you don't want trouble, you know what you say? You shut up. Yeah, you back <laughs> off. You don't, you don't stand your ground. Everybody's like, you need to stand your ground so you don't look like a punk. Getting smacked in the face and then calling the cops makes you look like a punk. Like, that makes you look like that makes you look terrible. That's terrible. And and I'm kind of concerned how the UFC, unless the UFC just thinks all their fighters are a bunch of busters, that fighters can say whatever they want and nobody's going to square off, I wouldn't put pro football players who've been talking a lot about each other at a retreat together because they're going to square off. Like, people say it's not professional because all the other sports don't do this. Uh, I remember Shaquille O'Neal slapping the heck out of Utah in the beginning of a playoff game on national TV, like slapped him, dropped him. And you're telling me that, that MMA guys, this happens in hockey. It happens in NFL. It happens in NBA. People aren't going to tolerate disrespect of that nature. If you want to be disrespectful, be prepared for what comes with it. If you don't want problems, you don't say nothing. You back off. If I, if I said something crazy about you and you run up on me, Siobhan, were you saying that stuff? Hey, dude, I didn't mean it. I was just giving my honest opinion. I don't want any trouble. Whatever. If I choose to stand my ground, then I'm essentially saying that I'm not scared and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I know there's a legal aspect to it, but I somehow think that the UFC might actually be responsible for this too, because how do you have a game full of fighters who you know, they pay attention to Twitter, you know they have beef, you know it can go, it's, it's, it's gone off on, on fight nights, it's gone off on uh, post-fight and pre-fight conferences. 
You don't have any security there. You don't have anybody to hold anybody back. You just left them up there with alcohol <clears throat> and a lot of time to be around each other, knowing where everybody stays and what they're doing. What sense does that make? Mm-hmm. That is like the dumbest thing. Michael Kiseya couldn't control himself on a podium against Kevin Lee, and Kevin Lee didn't get charges pressed against him, even though he punched Michael Kiseya in the mouth. So I don't know how that happened. John Jones got a water bottle thrown in his face. Um, he swung on DC the first time they got into it, but somehow cyborgs getting reprimanded and having police charges put against her. Are you serious? That didn't make any sense. They have worse stuff happen at their conferences. Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz throwing cans of soda into a crowd at each other. That's okay. But this is, this is against the law. This is unprofessional, I guess, because it doesn't benefit them in a pay-per-view or ratings. They can't stand for it. They're going to take a moral high ground now. But I've lost all respect for Mangana. She's just in a, I don't even know why she's at the retreat. She's on a six fight losing streak. She hasn't won in two years. What is she doing? At a is she really on a six fight losing streak? Someone else brought that up, but I meant the look. And I meant the I'm look. Is her sure. losing streak I'm really that good? Sure. She, she, I'm pretty sure. I'm almost guaranteed it. What is she doing up there anyway? She's like, she, it's just, it's a bad look. It's, and I understand what people say the legal ramifications, Cyborg should be the bigger person. But, and I'm a, I'm a person who likes to break up fights myself. But my dad raised me to be the kind of person, you don't talk that kind of stuff. People shouldn't be have the freedom to get away with say, insulting your character like that and then hiding behind people. I, I'm just not a fan of that, dude. I, I'm not, and I don't like it. And and maybe it was wrong, but I'm kind of glad she got what she got. You know, it wasn't like- She, she last she fought, uh, let's see, she last fought, she last won back in 2011. That's six years. So it's been- it's been six years since her last victory, and she lost four straight. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. Wow. I mean, I know legally yeah. Cyborg shouldn't have done that, but I'm just not a fan of people. I hate the way society is now where you can say whatever you want and you can hide behind somebody. I don't care if you say what you want when it comes time to deal with that consequence. And it's not like Cyborg beat up a media member. This is another fighter. You know, I mean, I don't care if she's smaller. She's still a fighter. She knew what she was saying. You know, I mean, it would have been a media member. Okay. If she's picking on Karen Bryant, uh, all right, come on now. That's different, you know, but, you know, but if a media member had a problem with another media member and they smacked him, I'd be like, that's what you get, dude. You on Twitter talking about how this person's garbage. You didn't think you were going to see him? I, I don't know. I lost all respect for her, though. And I, I'm on Cyborg. I hope the charges get dropped. I hope Mangana just goes away. This is just terribly embarrassing. I know she got a kid and, man, I'd be embarrassed if my mom did some stuff like this. I'd be like, man, dude, you just... Man, you're making me look bad, Mom. Just stop it, dude. Just think about me for once. It, it's just embarrassing all around for everybody. But I, I'm I'm actually curious. Do the UFC own any responsibility for this? Because they didn't have no security there. And I don't understand how you have a building full of fighters with no security when you know they have problems with each other. And you know you have a bunch of hotheads who, who beef with each other and talk stuff and, and warn people about getting smacked up before they go to the retreat. Mike Perry made a warning about smacking somebody up. You didn't have no security there? In case something happened? Yeah, man, she got popped right dead in the mouth. Um, and I have no problem with it. I ain't got no sympathy for her. Where was her girls at? Weren't all her friends there? Like- watching. Watching. It's funny. It's funny because someone else posted. I don't. I can't remember the guy who did it, but um, it may have been Andre Feely or someone. 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 It was a male tweeted that after Cyborg hit Magana, 
she turned to one of the guys and one of the guys who was trying to separate them. And she said, do you want some too? I'm like, yo, that right there is it for me. I don't want nothing to Nope, You stand there and you watch. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't need those kind of problems there. I don't need those. I do not no, You can get these hands and I am not the one with my hands out trying to get some, because if she turned to one of the guys and said, you can get this too, or do you want some too? Like, hell no. Nope. Hell to nah. I actually almost went to a, a seminar cyborg had and they were like, I ended up not having the money, but somebody's going there and one of my friends went, he's like, yeah, we got to spar with her. And I'm like, you actually did that? He goes, I know it was the biggest mistake. She was going easy and it was horrible. He goes, the first time she touched me, I was like, that's it. That's it. Yeah, no, I, nope, not not in my right mind. Not not at all. I would have been like, Magana attacked her. <laughs> that's what I saw. <laughs> that's what I saw. I saw self-defense. And if Cyborg <laughs> asks you, you tell her that I said Magana attacked her. That's what you, you tell her. You don't tell her nothing else. But you know what? Don't even mention me. I don't want any, I don't want this come back to me any way, any shape, any form, nothing. I'm like, hey, you're on your own. Lock the door. You two figure this out. I'm going to wait out here. <laughs> So the last joint I want to touch on, man, is um, another fight that's not necessarily announced, but the idea is being thrown around as we have, um, as you know, you know, uh, Cody Garbrandt is out of um, out of his fight against uh, TJ Dillashaw for UFC 213. I believe that's when that fight was slated. Word on the street is they're trying to get a quote unquote super fight with TJ Dillashaw fighting against Demetrius Johnson. I have so many different problems with this potential quote unquote super fight. But um, what are your thoughts if, if if they were to make this fight? And what are your thoughts on them even trying to make this fight? I first of all, I never, I don't hate. I always had to preface this because I, I I'm not a TJ Dillashaw fan. I'm not a TJ Dillashaw fan. He shouldn't be getting the fight. There was a the chance for that fight was when he had the title belt. They could have had a super fight because it's two champions. Now it's just a guy at 135 who has no title, who's coming off a reality show, trying to get a money fight. Why doesn't he fight some other name? Some other guy. He's just trying. He's essentially trying to get a, a big name fight that's going to get him paid and get him some kind of leverage to maintain his his chance at Cody. And to get some leverage over the UFC, it's a win-win. It's a win for him. It's another big fight. It might even be bigger than the Garbrandt fight for Mighty Mouse. What does it do for him, dude? He's fighting a guy who, yeah, he's a top 135er, but he's accomplished nothing at 125. And I know everybody's like, well, there's nobody at 125. There's nobody you like at 125. Just because you don't like them or you don't think they can beat Demetrius Johnson, doesn't mean that you don't have guys with legitimate wins and legitimate ranks at 125 for him to fight. It's not fair for Dillashaw to just jump the line. At least have him come in and fight a top five guy and then maybe, like, have him fight Tim Elliott and then fight and then fight Demetrius Johnson. But for him to just come in, I don't care about how good the fight could be. I don't care about how good Dillashaw is or how good he's supposed to be because I still say his defense is awful, awful. Just think it's terrible. When he's dancing around, he's great. The minute he throws a punch, he's as hittable as anybody else in the world. It's, it's a great fight. I get it. I get the interest. But let's say he loses. Well, you know, I never made that weight. I don't want to hear your excuses. You made excuses when you lost the Cruz. You made excuses when you lost the Dodson. You always got some excuse and some reason why you lost and how someone robbed you and this wasn't this and this wasn't that. He just have another excuse because I never made the weight and I fought the best guy in the world and so I lost and it's okay. I don't want to hear it, dude. If he wants to be 125, drop to 125, 
win one or two fights and earn a title fight with him. If you, you don't want to dedicate yourself to, class, to the weight class, don't drop down because you know he's not staying at 125. He beats Johnson. He's dropping the title and moving right back up. He ain't staying at 125. He'll make it once. He might make it twice, and that's going to be it. It's a waste. It has no benefit for Johnson. It might get him a short-term payday, but it doesn't really give him the big money he wants because Dillashaw, Dillashaw isn't a draw himself. He's boring. No, and he's a great, he's an exciting fighter. He's a boring talker. He has no fan base. It doesn't give Mighty Mouse will make no more fighting him than he'll make fighting anybody else. Not the way he wants to make money. And once again, it breaks his own rule of having guys work their way to earn a shot. Whether you think the guy earned the shot or he hasn't, those guys did it the right way, and he respects each and every guy who works their way up to him. I don't see, I mean, I know they don't have anybody else to fight him who people think can beat him, but I'm not going for this. If it happens, great, fine, wonderful. But I'm on, I'm on Mighty Mouse's side. I wouldn't agree to anything unless you're paying me a whole lot of money because I'm taking a bigger risk and I'm fighting a guy who isn't going to be in my division and who isn't going to stay in my division. What's in it for me? A $100,000 payday? Nah, that's not good enough. 200000 isn't good enough either. 300000 isn't good enough. 400000 isn't good enough. You got to come with some real money for me to take this fight because it's a fight that A, I don't have to take, and B, it's a fight that I don't want to take because it goes against goes against my rules. Mighty Mouse has never been a guy who shortcuts. He wants everybody to get their shot so he can clean out the division and prove his dominance. He doesn't want to jump. He doesn't want to jump the line. And he said that since day one. So this is in tune with his character. So if I'm him, I'm not doing it. If the UFC wants to strip me or whatever, who cares? I'm not doing TJ Dillashaw any favors. TJ Dillashaw could have had this fight if he wanted it when he was a champion. He ain't won it when he was a champion. So I don't want it now. It does nothing for it does nothing for Mighty Mouse at all to beat a ranked contender at 35. Ooh, big deal. We already know he could beat ranked guys at 35. That means nothing. Him fighting Garbrandt might have some merit. And he even said he wouldn't fight Garbrandt. He'd make Garbrandt come down because Garbrandt's the champion. Dillashaw's not the champion. So what does it do for him other than just a good, a good win? It's just another good win. Who cares? And you notice how quickly the fans turn around for he's underrated, he's the best, everybody should love DJ. Now they're all calling him cowards. Now they're saying he's scared, he's ducking TJ Dillashaw. Last week he was the best thing ever. Now he's a fraud? Talk about fair-weather fans. No wonder, no wonder Mighty Mouse doesn't give a damn about people. This is yeah, a key example right. why fighters don't care about fans. He doesn't get like he and he's being more open about it, and I can to, and I can totally appreciate that um, through and through. I like he just he gives zero fucks and he lets everybody knows. He should doesn't affect his payday. Y'all aren't getting them paid. You want to fight Dillashaw, make it worth it. Yeah, while. you're right. They're not getting them paid. The UFC, the UFC is not going to make it worth his while. And so if he, if he beats Dillashaw, what does that really prove? People are making excuses. Dillashaw never made the weight before. He was expecting to fight Garbrandt. Oh, you won, so that's nothing. You need to give him a, if it's a tough fight, you need to give him a rematch. There's just no way he comes out of this clean. Even if he knocks him out with the first punch, there'll be some kind of excuse. It'll be a mediocre payday, and fans still aren't going to buy into him. So why doesn't he just be true to himself and do what he wants to do? That's what he, that's what he should do, and I, I'm of the mind that's what he's going to do. I like the fact that he's not letting them bully him and dictate terms to him. You say ain't done, ain't done that much for him. In my opinion, I don't know what they really have done for him. So I, I don't think he should take the fight. I, I, not for the title. If they just want to have a fight, sure. I'm not putting my title up. I'm not getting Dillashaw an extra payday. Psst, forget that. He wants he wants a payday. Let him earn it like everybody else did. You're right. 
You're definitely right on that one. Um, so with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. You know, we had a great conversation today for sure. So um, what are you working on for the uh, for MMA ratings this week? Uh, surprisingly, I am in, in anticipation of the Wonder Woman movie. I'm actually doing an MMA-based, trying to apply MMA statistics and rankings and breakdowns to the character of Wonder Woman, her fight style, her characteristics to define her fight style, her strengths and her weaknesses. And I'm using all female fighters to exemplify the characteristics that make her such a good fighter in the comic books and the characteristics that describe her fighting style. Is that this week? That movie comes out this week? It comes out next week. Uh, I finished half of it. I'm trying to finish the other half of it. So we have it right before the movie comes out. But that's what I'm working on right now. It's it's actually very fun. And I'm hoping it'll be a big piece because there's a lot of people who like comic books and I'm breaking and I'm like an actual analyst who breaks down fights. So it's going to be looking at her from a, even though it's a fiction point of view, a, a realistic slash fiction point of view. And I'm going to use kind of historical references to describe and break down her fight style and use actual examples from the comic books of her using certain techniques and certain approaches. And then I'm going to use actual female fighters who kind of mirror some of her qualities as ways of expressing her strengths, her weaknesses, and the duality of her skills as a fighter. Okay. I can definitely appreciate that, man. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing that. Yeah, you know, my, you know Michael's kind of nerd nerd that on that kind of stuff. So Of course he know, does. It, it was his suggestion, and I was kind of like, you know what? What's the worst that can happen, man? It's an interesting challenge. Why not? Why not give it a shot? Right, you know that's 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 how you could that that's how you should live every aspect of life. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, yeah, and ride and, and and ride with it. Yeah, I mean, if you're not doing nothing illegal, hey, have at it. That girl you want to talk to, that job you want to apply for, you want to try for an NBA team, and you're only five eight. Hey, the worst What's case the scenario, worst? you just get, you find out you weren't good enough. You knew that in the beginning, but hey, best case scenario, you're making five hundred thousand dollars to sit on a bench. Right. What's the worst that could happen? Exactly. All right, man. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out. Again, we appreciate everyone listening to the show. Be sure to like and share all of our content. Hit the like button. Hit the uh, share button. Share it across social media. Do whatever you got to do. But we appreciate the content, and we look forward to um, Uh, being back next week. Say it again? We're on on YouTube, of course. Yes, Uh, that's right. Go ahead. Let everybody know. You want to try uh, SoundCloud, of course, because it usually has the a cleanest, the cleanest quality, but we're on YouTube, we're on SoundCloud, and I think we're on Stitcher as well. So, you know, you look for, you look for us, and we have multiple platforms so that everybody can get to the show, because some places you can't play YouTube at work, can't play it on your phone or computer. We're trying to give you the show in as many platforms as possible so you can enjoy it, you can like it, and you can uh, get behind us. And the better, the more people we get behind us, the bigger the budget gets, the better the talks we have, the more guests we can have for you guys. So just, you know, we're doing our best for you. And um, if you like us, just do your best and like it and, and listen to it and tell your friends about it. Definitely, definitely. Be sure to check us out next week. We'll be back Thursday, same time. Um, and again, as always, we appreciate everyone taking the time to listen to us and check out our show. All right, sir. You have a good evening. You too, man. Have a great one. Thank you.